Living Hope Reformed Baptist Church. If you're a visitor and you are not usually here, we're very glad you're here. I ask everybody to turn in your own Bibles to Luke chapter 5, and we're going to uh, uh, be there this afternoon as we, we continue surveying what the Gospels show us as the invitations of the Lord Jesus Christ, His free, His open, His gracious, His merciful invitations for you to come to Him and be nourished with eternal life. And tonight, we're in Luke chapter 5. This, this passage, Jesus, in His own words, corrects what was a common misconception about Himself and His mission and His purpose. And it, and, and it is a misconception that is still rife today in the church. And it goes like this. <clears throat> it is that Jesus is the Son of God, or that in the Jewish mindset, those who are misunderstanding Jesus, even they believe that the Messiah's point was to be the Son of God, come down to earth, that he was going to confirm the goodness of God's law and interpret it rightly for the people. This was prophesied, that the Messiah would come, and he would be a teacher, just like Moses, but better than Moses. That he would come and interpret the law of God, and we would walk in righteousness. That he would teach people to be separate from sin, and to commit to holiness. The error taught and says that Jesus would teach us to deny our sinful tendencies, and to devote ourselves to obedient living. That God's mission in the world is not of this world. That God's purpose in this world is not of this world. And it is against the anti-God consensus of this world. That God the Messiah would come and then he would vindicate the persecuted remnant of righteous followers of God. And that he would bring judgment against the unholy and the unrighteous. That the Messiah would come and people think that Jesus will establish heaven on earth where the righteous, eventually, in his second coming, he will establish heaven on earth where the righteous followers of God are able to be with him and they can dwell with God, whereas the unrighteous are cast out into utter and eternal darkness. That is the damnable heresy that is so pernicious even in many of the church today. Did you hear the error? Did you even manage to pick up on what was so wrong about that? Or does that kind of sound like the way you would phrase the gospel? Here's what was missing in that gospel presentation of the message of Jesus. The gospel. What was missing in there was any notion of substitution for the God-man, uh, substituting himself in the place of sinners and paying their price and being punished for their guilt under the wrath of God. That wasn't in there. And for many in the Christian church, I wonder if it was enough for you, they're perfectly happy with that presentation of the, of the mission of God in the world. Come down, judge those filthy sinners, vindicate the righteous, and take us to our heavenly spiritual home one day. That was the misconception of many in Jesus' day. It is still the misconception of many today. And what is missing there is the invitation for sinners to rush en masse into the kingdom of God through the door that Jesus opens up of forgiveness, which is opened by his blood shed for them. And then what is missing is the mission of the church to then be mobilized to find and seek all those that are lost and dying in their sin and to bring them to the Lord Jesus Christ. That also was missing. But to many Christians, that's perfectly fine. Or so-called Christians. To many so-called churches, it is perfectly fine that they, that they leave that part out of their purpose and their identity because the, the whole purpose of the mission of God for them in their mindset is that God would confirm and congratulate the righteous and do away with the sinners. This was the mindset that was exposed in the Pharisees and the scribes as Jesus goes and meets with Levi, who will soon be called Matthew, and will then go and write the gospel of Matthew and be one of Jesus' apostles to the ends of the earth, preaching the gospel. Levi was a tax collector. I don't need to explain to you that we all hate the tax man. I think they, uh, one of the blessings for the safety of those people, in, at least in our modern world, is they get to do everything online and they require you to fill out forms and send it off to this disembodied. But I tell you, if there was still a tax office where a tax man worked and lived these days, it would be burned down just about every other week. 
is a dangerous job when your entire living is based off of taking money from other people so that you can give it to the blessed and only sovereign, wonderful mother government, right? Nobody likes that guy. But it was even worse because Levi's job was a tax man, but he was a tax man for not just the Jewish government, but even worse than that, the, the occupying empire of Rome, who had the, the Judean countryside, the, the nation of Israel, under its tight grip, and it would squeeze out of Israel everything that it could by way of taxes. I'm sure in 2023, you know, nothing what this is like, but the government was trying to exact a tax out of everything. There was an income tax and a goods and services tax, and a petrol tax, and a water tax, and a walking tax, and a, a sunlight tax. I mean, if the government could figure it out, oh wait, they're literally doing that, they're going to start taxing how much sun you get, and how much air you breathe, and how much uh, 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 fuel you use. This is what the government loves to do. In every main empire throughout history, it is not enough for them to do God-ordained tasks, as we see in the Bible, but they always want to encroach even further on human freedoms, and take more of the penny so that they can do greater and grander things than they were ever designed to do. But this is what the empire of Rome, not only was this their downfall, but this was their hellish grip over Israel, was that they would take out of these, these despised Jews as much money as they could squeeze. And one of the very tricky but filthy methods that they had to do this was that they created this sort of this ministry, this government ministry, this government-sponsored federal job. And what it was was that a Jew could put in a bid to become, right? You could put in an, an auction price to purchase for yourself one of the offices to become a tax collector. And then by the, the way that you paid off your debt, which you just emptied your bank account to become a tax collector... The way you then pay that off is by extortion, just squeezing taxes and inventing taxes and, and putting boom gates everywhere. And every time a Jew has to walk past, you make them pay a dime and you, and you extract all these things out of people. So you pay off your own debt and make a profit to live very luxuriously. And that's what the Levites did. Now, the, sorry, Levi, the tax collector, this is what they did. They were declared unholy by the spiritual class of Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees because it was, such a, it was such a disgustingly immoral job. You're funding the devilish, demonic, anti-God system called Rome that has persecuted and even slaughtered many of God's people. So you're an enemy of our spiritual state. But even politically, they were considered as enemies because they were siding with the empire. This would be very similar to those people who were the, who were the rats, who were the collaborators, who were the dogs who told the secrets to the Nazis which houses were keeping Jews, which houses had young men of fighting age so that the Nazis, the KGB, etc., could come and steal away the sons to go to the war or could come and take away the Jews and send them to... It was this kind of man that Levi was. He was the collaborator. When the, when the uh, KJB rolled up into town, he just waltzed right into the street with a white flag and said, I can show you where every Jew is living. That's the kind of guy that Levi is. And it's precisely to that kind of man and to that man himself that in Luke chapter 5, Jesus walks up to and says, Levi, come and follow me. This is what he did, says in verse 27. And, and uh, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And then leaving everything, he rose and followed him. This is the kind of guy that Jesus just walks up to in the full view of everybody and says, you and me, we're a thing now. You're a student of mine. You're going to follow me. You're going to serve me. Now, what made this such an insult to the Pharisees and the scribes is not only that they saw it happen, because they're just obsessed with Jesus. No one is more obsessed with you than the people who irrationally hate you. Isn't that just the truth? They'll follow everything you do on social media. They'll follow everything you do and talk about your texting. Know who you're friends with and know what you said and know what you liked seven years ago on YouTube. And they'll know everything about you so that they can have everything against you. This was Jesus and the Pharisees. They were obsessed with him. All over the New Testament, we see that this is because, explicitly it's told us in the Bible, they were jealous of him. They were infuriated by the fact that they were the holy ones. They kept the law, but he got the crowds. 
They did everything they could to try and amass a following, even threaten people with hell if they didn't follow them. But Jesus got the masses following him. That infuriated them. And the Pharisees and the scribes, let's explain them for a moment. The Pharisees were the, let's say, the lay-level students of theology. They were the, and this is a great illustration in our day, they were the seminary students, okay? They were the guys with the bachelors of theology, and they could pass the Greek verbs, and they had the glass, and they were in every online theology forum, and they'd been to every theology conference that has happened on Australian shores, and they've studied all of Calvin, and they knew everything. This was the kind of guys they were. They were the lay-level students of theology, but the scribes were their leaders, They were their rock star, religious leaders, the conference speakers, the book writers. They were the the people that you wanted to go and get your your baby signed and your book signed and your baptism certificate signed by. These were the people that you wanted to bless you. And, And the way that a Pharisee would just have his life completed in life is that he gets asked by the, his favorite scribe as the, the parents sponsor them and send them off to, to his school and, and get him the varsity jacket with that scribe's name on it when finally that scribe says, you, come and follow me. You can be my follower, my student. I'll teach you. You can pay your monthly fee, make me rich, but I will let you be in my presence. It is that moment that would just fulfill the purpose of life for these hyper-religious Pharisees. Now, Jesus walks through all of them, passes each one of them, the rock star preacher, the rabbi who was getting crowds upward of 25,000 in a stadium to preach to. This Jesus walks past all of the Pharisees, pushes and barges through the scribes, makes his way to where none of the other Jews are congregating. He goes right up to the tax collector's table and says, Levi, filthy and despised among men, hated by the religious Wanted dead by the political, you are with me. Come and follow me. This then happened. Uh, Levi went out and he went and went home with Jesus, took Jesus to his home and threw a party. The kind of party with the kind of people that would hang out with Levi. Which is none of the religious, none of the politically well-to-do. Just the rich gamblers, the business owners, the filthy uh, people who moved around uh, obscene literature and pictures, uh, the, the, the people involved in the black market, the girls with the lipstick and the guys with the lipstick and the girls in short skirts and the guys in short skirts and the guys who visited the girls in short skirts and the guys who were in short skirts visiting the other guys in the short skirts. Are you getting the picture of this kind of party? This was a meth house. This was the, this was the, 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 the drug den. This was the, where the prostitutes went to hang out after their shift. This is where the, the drunkards and the gamblers and the meth heads went to hang out. And Jesus was invited. And what did he do? Well, he was a good Christian and he said, no, thank you. I'm going to go back to seminary and have a Bible study. He went right with them. He sat with them, and then these kinds of people who have never been given the bother of a moment of the light of day to the Pharisees or the scribes, they sit at these tables and Jesus teaches them. And he talks about the kingdom of God with them, and and he's calling them to repentance and pointing out their sin, and then we see what happens with the Pharisees and the scribes. Now remember, they wouldn't be within a hundred yards of this house, but they're hiding behind bushes. They've crafted a a camouflage little uh, outfit so that they can spy on Jesus. And they're all whispering together like a bunch of jealous high school girls. And they say to each other, and then they say to Jesus' disciples, right? They creep up because they can't be seen there, but they want to get close enough to judge Jesus for being there. And they say to some of Jesus' disciples, look at verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? That's a catch-all phrase for the scum of the earth. The hookers and the druggies and the drunkards and the tax-collecting, thieving, collaborating betrayers. Why are you with them? And it says that Jesus answered. We don't know how Jesus heard or whether the disciples ran back in and said, this is a good question. I was wondering it myself, uh, Jesus, why? Or whether Jesus, being God, heard them in their thoughts like he did at other times. I like to think 
that they were outside the party being questioned and Jesus just walked out onto one of the the top level patios, like the veranda, and he just calls out over the veranda, preaches at him, and then goes back inside where the bass is still blaring. This is what Jesus, Jesus comes out and he says, hey, Pharisees, they look up, there's Jesus, he's got a He's got a Hawaiian frill on his neck, or he's, he's holding a glass. He's drinking water that maybe he turned to wine, we don't know, but he's surrounded by people that are not the religious well-to-do, and the religious hypocrites can't stand that he's there, or that I'm even describing it like that, because the religious hypocrites are perfectly fine to read Luke 5 as long as it's encased in, in the biblical kind of nomenclature so it sounds like a Bible story. You hate me describing it like this because that would make it real. That's what it would actually look like in our day. So the the head-to-toe, tattoo-covered, all done by their own garage pen, tattoo-covered people are standing around Jesus, and he calls out and says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And he walks back inside and closes the double doors. Jesus did not come, despite the whole mindset of the scribes and the Pharisees, he didn't come to find the most righteous and say, please be on my team, please represent me. I'm coming to call the best, and who has the greatest uh, 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 CV and resume and educational diplomas, and who has done the most for God? You're who I want. He said, I'm coming to call the sinners to repentance. And so we have to start here in our three-part sermon tonight, do not think wrongly of Jesus. He corrects this misunderstanding of his whole mission and his own self. He, in fact, came for the sinners. It's not as if in, in part of Jesus' main ministry, he didn't neglect hanging out with sinners. It's not as if as he came to establish the religious majority, he didn't mind if sinners came to him. He actually defines his entire ministry right now, and this is good news to sinners, to, to the worst and the most defiled and the kind of people that you would, you would admit, I'm not part of the religious, conservative, political group. Glad you're here. I'm not the kind of people that would ever be employed by a church. I didn't even know churches existed till I was invited by one and I was sure to one and I was sure that it was going to close down on me. Have you ever invited a friend from work and they say, if I go in, the ground's opening up and hell's going to eat me alive. You ever, you ever had a friend like that? I've, multiple of my friends tell me, oh, oh, you don't want me there. The, the sky will open up and God will judge us all. I'm like, I, it, we're pretty bad. I gave them names of some of you. I said, there's this guy. And he would, no, if it hasn't happened now, God is still merciful. Come along to church. But if you're that sort of person, you are precisely the sort of person that Jesus came from heaven for. If you're a fairly righteous person and a, and a pretty religious person, and you think that you really are quite good, and you praise God that you're better than other people because you're really humble, and you thank the Lord that he made you eons more righteous than those filthy sinners... To you, you need to realize that the only sort of person that Jesus came for, the only kind of person that Jesus is concerned with is sinners. Or if you have despaired, if you have thought of yourself as too sinful for Jesus, too lost for religion, the sorts of things you've done, religion can't fix. The sorts of things you've seen, the kinds of things you've even engaged with, with your own body or experienced on a spiritual level, I don't know. You would feel there's nothing that some neat and tidy Christianity can do for me. And I say, well, the power's not in Christianity. It's in Christ. The power is Jesus to change people, to call sinners to repentance, and then make you repent. He gives you that new heart to do so. This is the power of Jesus. Think of the medic. That as Jesus stands there on on the frat house and says that the religious seminary students are the ones in the wrong, and he says, the doctor doesn't go to the healthy. It's not the healthy that need a physician, it's the sick. This would be very similar to a, to a medic in the Second World War, being called under, under martial code and disciplined by the generals and the attorneys of the state because he was wasting national army resources with his continual visiting of the sick in the mud, in the trenches. 
that, that he's being hauled across the coals in the law court as they ask him, you did nothing. Here are the records. Here's the minutes. Here's the, here's the, re- the, the account of those soldiers you worked with. They said you spent all of your time with the sick and the dying. You didn't once give morphine to the perfectly well-abled man running towards enemy lines. You, you just kept on getting in the mud. Your uniform is stained with blood, mind you. High laundry costs. You keep on giving medicine to the sick. Yeah, and and, and this, this record has been shown on your data that the sicker and the closer to death they are, the more you serve them. How dare you and give an answer for your crimes. Here he would stand with the simple, basic, unquestionable logic of Jesus. The healthy didn't need me. In fact, the medic, if, if he was to say, you wanted me to chase down the healthy, slow them from their running, jab them with morphine, they'll, 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 slow, they'll slump, they'll, they'll lose their sharpness. You want me to chase after those in the turrets gunning down the Nazis and, and quickly pull them and do their blood pressure and bind up non-existent wounds? They would throw me aside and say, I don't need you. Get out of my way. You're slowing me down. And this is what the Pharisees and the scribes were realizing that if they were being offered balm, if they were being offered healing, and they had no concept of their own guilt or sin, they would think of Jesus as an unnecessary load and burden. That's how many people think of Christ. That as the gospel is preached, and, and they just this pastor, he just keeps on mentioning and obsessing with bloodshed and justification and faith alone and salvation at the cross... When's he going to get to the good stuff that I really vibe with, like being a great neighbor and how God rewards righteousness and how obedience is the path to blessing? When's he going to focus on those things? And as Jesus is offered as a savior, you think of him as a nuisance and a burden. To you, Jesus says, I didn't come. And this is a harsh warning. I did not come for righteous people who don't think they are sick. I came for sinners to call them to repentance. The second thing to realize is, don't, the first was don't think wrongly of Jesus. Don't misconstrue his entire ministry. He came for the sinners. The second is do not be afraid to acknowledge your sickness. By his own words, Jesus said, the healthy do not need a physician, but those who are sick. And I have not come for, to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What this means is by even saying those words, what he is uh, uh, saying by assumption is that no one can come to him, no one will qualify to be called unless there is an acknowledgement of sin sickness. Jesus says, I'm not calling the righteous, but the sick. No one would ever respond to that call unless they have already come to the acknowledgement that they are sick with sin. And so this is for you tonight, that as Jesus invites the sinners to himself, you need to first come to a recognition, maybe you never have before in your life, that you are just the worst thing in your life. You're the problem. You're your biggest problem. You you may be a great neighbor and a good friend, and I'm glad you're here, but you're your biggest problem. You are a filthy sinner. You are the kind of thing and person that God looks at and justly condemns to hell. You are the reason you're going to hell. By your own choice and your continual behavior, you are the source of all of the devilish problems in your life. And and this image of sickness is a very fitting image for sin. First of all, because it's it's disabling. Sickness is disabling. I mean, we're we're in an age when when even headaches or sensitivity to light or or leg pain can simply be masked with pain relief, and and what a wonderful thing. But this makes us a little bit less aware that, that simple sicknesses can significantly affect your mobility and ability. That is that in, in other ages, a, a simple ingrown nail might, might, might make a man limp for months on end because antibiotics aren't around and simple processes of clean instrumentation are not, are not known. That, that, a, that a slight headache can be solved maybe with a whole bunch of wine, which will give you a headache anyway. Otherwise, you just lump around aching and sore and unable to think straight. So the sim- most, even the most simple sicknesses can leave a man debilitated, But we, of course, as God pictures sin, does not simply mean a slight headache. As sickness images sinfulness, we need to think of the most debilitating, disabling uh, sicknesses. This is a whole body leprosy where body parts just fall off. 
This is, this is paraplegia from birth, where there is nil movement of the limbs and ability to look after self. This is, this is a, an apoplexy or a stroke where the brain shuts down by bleeding within so that every faculty of the body is affected. This is what sin is like. And in this concept, the, 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 the Bible speaks of the disabling effects of sin. Jesus even mentioned it in John 6 last week. Sin has so affected your soul that you can't do anything pleasing to God. And you can't even offer yourself to God rightly in faith unless God begins the healing, recreating uh, a process in you. Sin is a disabling sickness. We can also see the fitness of this image of sickness in the sense that it is disgusting. Leprosy. I mean, some of you may be nurses or or workers who look after sick people at home or doctors or surgeons or GP. If I could have any job in the world, I would take a bin man before being a GP. No offense to the bin man. Because GPs have, 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 have every sickness at their worst before this disgusting man... 50 years old, hasn't been to a doctor in 40. He's, he, 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 it has to get near death before he'll ever go to a hospital. It's just how men are built, okay? That's just what they do. Or these farmer men who've had a nail sticking out of their knee for six months, and they say to the doctor, do you really think I need to see somebody about this? And so the GP will see everything before it's been anesthetized, before it's been cleaned, before it's been, been washed, and before it's been wrapped up through the emergency. I mean, these guys see the most filthy things. And, and we, maybe you can uh, relate if you've had that experience, or maybe you've had the disgusting illness, or maybe you've just, you went through biology in grade 11, 12, and you just looked at the horrendous images in the textbooks, that there, that there are these, these wounds that grow in, in crevices and orifices and what used to be uh, 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 facial features of people's bodies that are just disgusting, just mutating, just filled, and they turn your gut with what comes out of it and what leaks and what, the way it smells. And if somebody, maybe you've had this experience, somebody walks past you on like the train and they leave pus and blood on you. Can I, can I just say that was a personal experience on the way to the Gabba to watch the Lions? I should have known before I went to an AFL game. But this was the, somebody just walked past and there's just this ooze on my arm from them. Now, whatever you're feeling right there in your gut, Think that about your sin. That, that disgust. So, so, so when people often say, I want to give my heart to Jesus. Here's the gospel. Come, come and give your heart to God. Let me say very clearly, God doesn't want your heart. It's a disgusting, filthy gift of you to think that he wants that. You're giving him a rotten, disgusting, tar-filled, putrefied, maggot-infested heart to God. What makes you think he wants that? It's not a gift. The gospel is not that you can come and give your heart to God. The gospel is this, that Jesus says, I call you to repent. I'll give you a new heart. I'll give you a new... It's Jesus that does the giving. God doesn't delight to have the present of your own heart. You're sin-sick and putrefied and disgusting. But good news, Jesus calls you to himself, just like Levi, and gives a new heart and repentance and faith and forgiveness. It is also this way that sickness is a great image of sin because it defiles. If you've got this continually bleeding wound, every clothing you put on it, you put on will be stained. When you are sick, maybe it's a gut bug, maybe it's just something of the lungs and you're coughing. The simple fact is that everything you do, your sickness goes with you. So, so you go for a walk, well, you're a sick person going for a walk. You go to the doctors, you're a sick patient going to the doctors. You, you go and visit a family friend, you're, you're visiting them as a sick person. You can't, you can't just sort of leave your sickness at home like you might leave your keys at home. That, that's not how, everywhere you go, there you are. And wherever you are, there's your sickness. And that's the way that sin is also. It can't be left behind so that everything you do is done by a sick person. Sin is like this. Every single thing you do whether or not objectively in itself a good thing, you do as a sinner. You go and you listen to preaching about the Bible, but you're doing it as a sinner. You, you went and you took communion. God would love that. Well, there's, that, it's great to take communion, but you did it as a putrefied sinner, a sick sinner. You, 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 you were learning a lot about the Bible, but you did so as a sinner. You went to church and attended regularly. You served other people, but you did so as a sinner. 
You fed the poor and gave much to charity, but you still did so as a sinner. You spoke in tongues or you went to a tremendous conference. You touched the apostle's leg and he healed you. You learned hymns and the catechism. You honored your parents. You went to the nicest schools or you were homeschooled. You didn't even touch the public school or the, or the Christian school people. You never got tattooed. You don't listen to worldly music. And yet everything you're doing, you're doing as a sinner. So, so, that, so that those things may be good things that are commanded by God, but that doesn't change the fact that you are sick. So doing something can't undo your sickness because you are doing it while you are sick with sin. None of it, therefore, is pleasing to the one who demands perfection because God's standard is perfection. So if Jesus has used sickness as a picture of sin, and that's how we want to settle down into the, into the understanding of that tonight, each of us born from our parents are born sick, we're born dead, we are born as rotting corpses and we live like spiritual zombies, we are all sick with sin, what that means then is that you do not need to fear listing your sins if Jesus is the physician. In fact, I can say it this way, the more of your sins you list in your confession, the quicker Christ moves to save you. The more open, I, I had this experience one time that I was sitting in the emergency room just last year, and uh, as I was sitting there waiting to be seen by the front lady in the triage where they decide how urgent is your case, I learned a little trick. As a fellow who came in and he was chatty, and by the smell of his breath, there was a substance helping him talk. And he was just chatty, and he was talking, and he was in this large hoodie and baggy pants. And as he came up to the triage desk to, to, so that they could know how bad is his sickness, when do you need to be seen, he takes off his jumper, revealing that three or four drains hanging out of him. And he takes off, of, uh, he rolls up his pants, uh, exposing all of these disgusting uh, 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 wounds. And he just starts listing everything that could possibly make him sound like a dying patient so that he gets seen quicker. And so he starts listing, listing the, the color of the things that are coming out of him where they shouldn't be coming out and the, the, the dreams he's been having and a cough that he had when he was six years old and a sickness he thinks he might get when he's 50. He just starts listing literally everything, his bowel movements down to his breath over the last month and they, short, they, they usher him in quickly. And here I am thinking, well, well that's great. I need it. When I go up here to tell them that, 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 that my infection is roaring, I just need to make myself sound as bad as possible within the Christian bounds of truthfulness so that I might be seen as per my need. Now, now here's, here's where this, this, this sick fella is just a great picture of you and I before Jesus. You need not ever feel like coming to God in prayer. You need to dress up and cover up and be as respectable and as, and as well-to-do as you possibly can. Come describing every wound, every sickness, every sin, every defilement, every evil, every unrighteousness that you ever thought, done, or seen. Because the more open you are with your sickness and your wounds, the more quickly Jesus will say, yes, you are the type of person I've come to save. You are the one I'm calling to repentance and to salvation. Do not fear calling out. Or, or as a medic might, might tell you on the, on the battlefield, the, the louder you cry, the quicker he can come to you. Or, or, or the, 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 the worse your wounds are, the quicker the medic will prioritize you. Uh, splinter in the foot, medic, will be passed over. Gunshot wound, head, hemorrhage, blood, loss of limb. That will have the medic running at his fastest pace to you. So in your own heart now, in your prayer after the service, in your going home tonight to talk to God, be real and be as real as you possibly can. The more open you are, you don't need to be worried or embarrassed about listing your filth. The more open you are, the more sure you can be that salvation will be yours. A repentant sinner turning from their sickness. Jesus, among the Pharisees, was telling them from the, from the party to them out on the street when he said, I've not come for the righteous but sinners. The doctor doesn't need the healthy but comes for the unhealthy. He was putting them into a, into, into, into a, a Gordian knot. He was putting them into quite a position. 
He's, it's as if there was a philanthropist, a wealthy philanthropist, walking down through the, through the poor parts of town or the, the center of business where there are some homeless and there are some businessmen. And, and as he's walking through, the philanthropist says, I'm, I'm here to give of my wealth. I, I fund all kinds of charitable things. I will give my, 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 my biggest generosity this week. I'm, I'm giving as much money as I can to beggars. I'm going right down to the bottom now, and anybody who is a beggar, who I see on the street, on their knees, bowl out, asking for money, I will give to them. And here are these rich, supposed men, these, these businessmen who, little do we know, but have lost their savings into gambling, who have spent all that they have in ridiculous fads and, and, and pyramid schemes, and they are as broke, no, they're in, they're in thousands of dollars more debt than the poor man who merely owes nothing. And so here are the beggars on the street crawling out of their tents and they're perfectly willing to take off a shoe because they don't have a bowl and hold it out and say, I beg, I beg, please, please give me something. And they receive. But though these businessmen are more poor, they are too proud to receive what they need. And so they forego the blessing because of their pride that says, I will not beg. I will never get down on my knees and beg of another person to give me money. And so they forego the blessing. And Jesus is picturing that to the Pharisees. He's saying, if you admit you're a sinner filled with sickness, then I can call you to repentance and you can follow me. You'll have my Father's blessing and forgiveness and my death will cover your sins. But before you come, do you acknowledge your sin sickness, your defilement, your, fail, your failure to do anything for yourself? Can we acknowledge that? And the Pharisees would not. They wanted to sort of hold on to this position of themselves that they are righteous because that was their whole reputation. That's how they lived their life. They got their income was by being the righteous guy. But they wanted, like Nicodemus, they wanted to sort of come to Jesus and just, just take what he had to offer preventatively. Right? Prophylactically. <laughs> I'm not sick. I would just like, the, uh, I would just like the, uh, uh, the medicine over the counter just in case. You know, I, I don't have the disease. It's not that I was uh, illicit in sexual behavior. I don't have the infection that was passed on from those women of the street. It's just prophylactic. You know? Could I just have that for myself while, while maintaining my reputation as a nice, healthy, righteous person? Jesus says there's none of that. He will not be a maybe savior if you need it. He does not offer himself to people to be the healing balm of your soul just in case. I know you're pretty good and you're righteous and you're healthy, but, but if you would like a little, uh, you know, option B, then here's the righteousness of Jesus and the death of Christ for you. Jesus is not being offered as a preventative, prophylactic medication in, just in case. He demands acknowledgement of ill health. He demands that you understand that you are sick with sin, and irreconcilably terminal. You are going to die from this illness called sin. And before he will discharge any of his duties and administer any of his saving benefits, we have to acknowledge that. The healthy need not apply. There is no space in Jesus for the healthy. There is no space in Jesus for the righteous. But for sinners and sick people, they can run to Jesus and be sure of his healing benefits being promised to them. Acknowledgement of sin and of this sickness that we're talking about of the soul is a horrible pain. I remember when God brought me to a recognition of my sin before he converted me, and it was a painful, horrible experience. And maybe some of you are in that right now. Maybe you can remember that time when you were converted and, and God made you aware of the disgusting filth that your sin uh, put over all of your life. It is a horrible realization to come to. And, and, and me, pointing out your sin, may earn me all sorts of names and vile insults in your head. You don't like that. Uh, bigot and old-fashioned and archaic health, hellstone, brimstone, fire preacher, all those things. I, I don't care. Because I see that the task of the Christian is to be the doctor with an x-ray pointing out the tumor that is deep within you. And it's true that, that if you will not recognize it, then, then God allows this growing, this growing pain, disgusting tumor of sin within you to grow until eventually you're collapsed on the ground, you can't use your legs, and you say, fine, I admit it, there's a tumor on my spine. God, God allows the grace of the pain of acknowledging your sin so that it drives you to a doctor and you seek your salvation. 
That's why God gives to this acknowledgement of your own sin such a heart-piercing, terrible feeling because it points you to Jesus and you run to him. It is needful that you recognize your pain, which is caused by your sin, your sickness of your soul, or you will never cry out and you will never seek the Savior. It's not as if Jesus doesn't save Pharisees. Don't think that. Don't think like, Jesus can save anybody except the self-righteous. No. Jesus doesn't save the self-righteous as self-righteous. He saves the self-righteous by turning them into people who acknowledge they are not self-righteous and driving them to himself. Uh, the, The book of Acts tell us that many Levites, many scribes, Many Pharisees turned to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as they recognized how useless their religion was and how dear and blessed this grace from God was in Jesus Christ. He obeyed the law for me. I'll take that. He died for my sinful, disgusting sickness. I'll take that. He he rose and now rules and he accepts all who come to him and calls sinners to repentance. As long as we acknowledge sin, I will take that. This was the case especially of Paul, who we know as the apostle. He was a Pharisee. He was a a man of the law. He was a religious expert and professional. And he, though he was immensely, maybe even the most self-righteous than any other man, yet God was able by his power, by Jesus' power, to turn his self-righteousness into self-deprecation into self-awareness of his own sickness, and he finally cried out to Jesus for mercy. And then later, Paul wrote to Timothy, his protege in the ministry. He says, Here is a trustworthy saying, deserving of everybody's acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But Paul is not just some some, uh, outlier, is not just some crazy one-off story. Here's what Paul says. But I received that mercy for a reason, so that in me, as the worst of sinners, Jesus Christ might be able to display his perfect patience as an example to everybody who will believe in him for eternal life. This is why the most self-righteous man was turned into somebody who recognized himself as actually the worst sinner and then got converted and then added to the church and made a preacher so that none of you can ever sit here and say you are too far gone for Jesus to save. Jesus knew he would need this example. He used this horrible rebel of Paul to prove to you there's no such thing as being too far gone for Jesus. But he does call you to repentance. He's not saying that you being such a sinner can tack salvation onto your life and live as you are. That that would be a half salvation, even a quarter salvation. Now, what Jesus is saying is so much more powerful than that, which is not only can I get you forgiveness, but I can change your heart to be one of repentance so that you walk away from this life and not just be saved from sin, but out of sin. Not just be saved from hell, but even out of the grip of sin in this life. This is Jesus' work. And then thirdly, we can say, we said, do not misunderstand the mission of Jesus. Secondly, do not be afraid to acknowledge your sickness. And thirdly, do not mistake the mission of the church. So many Christians think the task of the church is to avoid contact with sinners. And what we do is you mark a church by how holy it feels how few distractions a service has, how well-dressed everybody is, how righteous and how catechized and how reformed and how doctrinal and how similar and how common and same and obeying the rules everybody is. And when you just reach, it's it's a taste of heaven on earth. I have heard people describe churches which are sick with an anti-missional bug that hasn't seen a baptism in years say idiotic things like this. It's an oasis. Oh, it's just, the fellowship is amazing. It's a taste of heaven. No, no, it's none of those things. It's a taste of hell where self-righteous people celebrate from being separated from sinners. 
If you are the kind of Christian who, who despises and refuses to be in contact with filthy sinners that you'll get judged for being around, then enjoy the afterlife somewhere other than heaven. Because I'm afraid that Jesus is just far too lowly and unholy for you, so you'll have to find somewhere else to go. Jesus, the most holy one ever, to say it lightly, spent his time continually ticking off the religious types, not because he ever affirmed sin, but because his time was spent in with, with sinners and around them, calling them to repentance, the task of the church, and they despised that he dared to not think more highly of his reputation as a man of God. Churches need newly saved people frequently popping up in their midst. There's something just beautifully unsettling to the religious person about new Christians coming in, about unsaved people coming in and being welcomed, and then also getting saved and giving testimony and spending time with other people, and they don't know the doctrine, and they're saying technically heresies in their prayers, and, and worst of all, they don't know the dress code of the church, and they don't understand our view of like family and politics, and you keep on saying that thing that we all sort of acknowledge culturally is a taboo here, and all of these extra sort of Christian laws are built up slowly so that we have the most beautiful heavenly bubble of people who don't do what Jesus did, which is seek and save the lost. And the beauty of a person being born again in their midst and acting like a, a, non a, a new believer just unsettles those religious hypocrites so much as they're, they're uncomfortable with the way they're describing the gospel. They don't understand the full catechism immediately and, the, and here they are uncomfortable and that is so good for that church. Like, 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 like somebody who's been sitting on his couch watching the football game for years. Maybe, maybe like Uncle or Grandpa Joseph, if you watch the, the original uh, 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 Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factories. Can I use a worldly example here? Who, who just simply lay there year after year after year and didn't know how to get up and use his legs. Or in the nursing side of things, sometimes people have so misused their legs or not used their legs because of pain that they need literal machines to come in and break off the calcium of the knee and bend the knee for them. And that's what it's like with spiritual types, that the hearts are calcified and, the, and their minds are set on, on holiness for the sake of holiness and not having sinners around, that, that when new Christians come among them, they sort of ha they have to use these limbs they never used, which is like explaining the gospel to people. They've explained the dress code to people every other Sunday. They've reminded people how they need to look, dress, and act every other Sunday, but have they explained the free grace of Christ for sinners? Oh, they haven't done that in years. Have they ever done that? This is a pernicious disease that strikes churches that makes them conceited with their own success while they perish for lack of new birth and eventually die out, all the while, in their mind, being the holiest people on earth. And we need to re redefine what success is what the mission of the church really is, because holiness really means nothing out of context. Do you know that you can't actually just be holy for the sake of being holy? Being holy is better described as being like Jesus. Never define holiness without likeness to Jesus Christ. Never do that. And, and, and therefore, we can say that the holiness of a church is not marked by its commonality in dress code, speech code, look-alikes, and no tattoos, and they sing the right hymns, or they know the right amount of scriptures. That's not holiness. The marker of holiness, the clearest marker of the success in holiness is how much like Jesus that church is, which means how many souls they're being, that are being added to the church, placing their faith in Jesus, and growing the eternal kingdom of Christ. That's the marker of church health. Jesus came not to hang out and call and love all those people that the religious types and that we, to be honest, are so much more comfortable with calling to ourselves to add to our spiritual reputation and clout. Instead, he came and he spent his time among the sinners to call them for Jesus. We don't believe in justification by separation. You'll go to heaven because you don't spend much time with those people. Be distinct from their acts. Be clear in your righteousness. And of course, as a spiritual body, we purge the evil from within and only allow true, repentant, faith-filled believers to be called one of the Christian members. But inside these physical walls, 
at your fellowship groups and Bible studies and who you sit down for a beer or a coffee or a wine or a water with or who you, who you, 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 you do life with or invite to your home, those matters be as much like Jesus as you can and fill your life with sinners who need the balm of the gospel. If you're an unbeliever and you don't know for certain, more than you know that you exist, if you don't know for certain that you're going to heaven, if you were to pass away in your sleep tonight, then you need now to be honest with God and simply describe your symptoms. Not even sure I believe in you. Say that. That's just a symptom. He'll come help. I have such a hard heart. Oh, calcified stony heart. That's just a sickness symptom. List it. The medic will come. I, I love my sin. That's a symptom. List it. The medic will come. I, I love rebelling. I don't have righteousness to, of my own. I, I'm not religious. I'm none of these things. List your sins. They're just symptoms that Jesus can fix. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who died for you on the cross and rose again for your salvation. Let's pray. Father God, how rebuked and challenged we are by the recognition that we certainly would have been marvelously rebuked by Jesus if he were on earth today. We just know we would have at some point, like Peter, found ourselves thinking at odds with Jesus because we are so, so uh, 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 classically, so tending, uh, tendence, uh, our tendency is to always think of ourselves as just more righteous than Jesus and maybe even a little bit more Christ-like than Christ. And, and, and we can so easily fall into these ruts and these patterns. And God, we pray that you would keep us from this. That we would not misrepresent you to the world or to our friends. That, that, that our mission in life is to be separate from them. But rather that our mission in life is to bring them to heaven with us. Mm -hmm. Father God, we ask that this would identify this church as, as it so, so wonderfully does in so many people's hearts to bring sinners to Jesus. I pray, Lord God, more and more you would make that our lifeblood. But Lord God, right here tonight, there are some who don't trust in Jesus for salvation, who are outside of the kingdom, who, who, who are the people that the, the religious people would have nothing to do with, who are sick with their sin, who are putrefied in their guilt, who, who have rotten hearts, and we ask, Lord God, that you would give them new hearts, that they would believe in the gospel, trust in Jesus, and be saved forever by the great physician of our souls, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray all these things. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.